I, I know that some of you guys have been traveling, you're back, and you're excited, and we're so glad that you're here. There's so many of us that are out of town enjoying uh, summer, and, and unfortunately, I have to be the bearer bear of bad news that summer's about halfway over, or maybe even a little bit more for, for many families here. Uh, and so, I know a lot of families are away, and so we'll be praying for them. Uh, but today, we continue on this series called Summer Shorts. Uh, and we're looking at ver various books in the Bible that are a little bit smaller, shorter, a little bit more obscure. Like I said, books that we may have not had the opportunity to, to dive into in our own personal reading or other services. Uh, and so today we talk about this prophet, this book called Malachi. And, and Malachi, I'll be honest, it's one of my favorite books in the Old Testament because it's this idea of Malachi wrestling and grappling with God. And if you've ever been here, uh, and if you've ever doubted, if you've ever asked questions, if, if you've ever just had it all out with God, and you don't have to raise your hand, but I'm sure it's many of us, whether it's vocally with our loud voices or even internally, that's what Malachi is about. And so when the people of Israel, what Malachi suggests, is screaming, is yelling, is having it out with God, it reminds me a little bit about myself, and maybe some of us here in this room as well. And so that's why I love this book of Malachi. So I'm going to pray and, and let's get through it. God, thank you so much that even in this journey of faith that we have, we have space, we have the freedom to be honest and transparent with you. A, knowing that you can handle it, and B, that you just love honesty. And so, God, for many of us, we're in a place in life where we're wrestling. We're in search of hope. We're in search of healing. We're in search of answers. And, God, we beg of you of that. And we're confident that you will respond. And we are confident of your promises and that you say yes and amen. In your name we pray. Amen. For many of you... You know that uh, I, uh, this may, maybe it was, maybe a surprise, but I love to exercise. Anybody here just love to exercise? Okay, a lot, okay. Well, uh, I love to exercise, and, and, and some of you guys, if you guys are friends with me, uh, will also know that I like to exercise by way of this sport or this exercise regimen called CrossFit. Uh, and, and the reason why some of you guys may, may know that uh, is because there's this saying is true about CrossFit. CrossFit is like the reverse, uh, the reverse fight club, right? There's only one rule to CrossFit, and the rule is you always talk about CrossFit. Now, for those of you that have seen Fight Club, that is probably semi-funny to you. Uh, for, the, for the rest of us, uh, we know that those that participate in the sport talk about it uh, nonstop. And so that might be me from time to time. But all that to say is I love to exercise and I love to do it through by way of CrossFit. Now, I loved it so much that not only do I participate in it, but I also ended up being a trainer, being a coach uh, several years ago. Uh, and, and it's something I do as a hobby, something that gets my mind outside of the church world and, and helps me interact with people from all different backgrounds and all different uh, experiences. And, and, and that's what I love about, the, love about that the most. And, and as much as I love 
coaching and, and participating and exercising. The thing that I love about it the most is hearing people's stories. Little did I know that, to be, that as I became a trainer, I start to hear people's stories. And, and for some reason, uh, the stories that, are, that I hear that people vulnerably share with me out of just rawness and tenderness of their heart uh, is, is just so real. And some of it's so, so heavy that it becomes a privilege not only to, to train them, but to be just an ear for them to uh, just talk and to, and to share with. And a couple of years ago, I remember meeting this guy named Tim. He walks in to the gym. And he says, I'm brand new, and I want to get started doing CrossFit. He tells me a little bit about his story, you know, like, I'm, a little, I'm overweight, I'm unhealthy, here's, here's how I eat, um, all these things, and I, and, and I want to get started. And I said, okay. So we got, go through kind of a routine of what it looks like, and we do kind of a mini, mini CrossFit workout. And, and at the end of the mini CrossFit workout, he's exhausted. I mean, he's on the floor. He's breathing hard. He's sweating. I mean, it's like one of the hardest things he's ever done. And, and we sit down to kind of overview and to debrief. And I always ask every athlete this question, what brings you here? Well, what makes you want to get started? Why today? Because oftentimes, the way that an athlete uh, or a client answers that question, I can, uh, with great probability, uh, determine or guess how long they're going to last. Because oftentimes, when I ask that question, people will say something very aesthetic, like, oh, I want a six-pack, or, or I want to lose weight, or, or I want to gain weight. And yes, wanting to gain weight is a thing. Uh, or, or I want to look a certain way and, and I want to feel a certain way and all those are good, don't get me wrong. Those are all great, nothing against that at all. But unless there's something deep inside of you wanting transformation and change, oftentimes it doesn't last very long. And so when Tim walks in I, and after the workout we sit down, I said, Tim, all right, what makes you want to do this today, right now? Instead of giving me a list of the things that he wants to see changed, he tells me a story about two weeks ago. He says, two weeks ago, I was in the backyard playing with my five-year-old son. And, and we're running around the backyard, and after five minutes, after only five minutes, I had to stop. And I had to go back inside. And I can no longer actively play with my five-year-old boy for more than five minutes. And he said, he looked into my son's, he said, he said, I looked into my son's eyes and I just felt and I saw the disappointment in his face. And to him, that was a low point. And it was that low point that drove him to want to make a change. See, in our lives, all of us, we may all have different lives, but one thing we have in common is that as we live and as we breathe day in, day out, what we experience are the ultimate highs, we experience ultimate lows, and everything in between. That's just the journey of life. It's just filled with many ups, many downs, and many things in between. But I would argue that it's the point at the very lowest part of our journey that becomes the biggest catalyst for change. Yes, we may have all the good times, we may have everything in between, but it's the very rock-bottom times that causes us to rethink what we're doing. That says, wait a minute, something 
is not right. Something needs to be changed. And I don't know what that is. For many of us, it's all different things that happen in our lives. But there's got to be a point. There is a point, And I would say that we've all experienced this, that we hit such rock bottom. It was only because of that rock bottom spot that we were able to step back and say, something needs to change. And for Tim, it was him looking into his son's eyes in disappointment, saying, I can't believe I can't run around and play with my five-year-old son. Something needs to change. See, it's in these low points where we finally decide to surrender control because truth of the matter is we've done it all. We've tried it all and it didn't work. See, these low points ends up being a gift in our lives. We may not experience it now, we may not see it tomorrow, but it is. Maybe it's losing a relationship, maybe it's losing a job, maybe it's an injury, maybe it's an, an illness of you or a loved one. Maybe it's a scary financial situation. Maybe it's a loss of a loved one. The point is it's oftentimes these painful uh, seasons and times of our lives that compels us to think and do the things that we wouldn't normally do. And thus it becomes a gift in a really strange and divine and holy and sacred way. And see, when Malachi was written, Malachi was written uh, several years, or soon after, uh, the, the, the Jews came back from exile from Babylon. And when they came back from, from Babylon, you could imagine after 70 years of being in exile, they come back to their homeland and it's been destroyed. And, and you have to understand that this is not just the place of residence, but it is their home, it's their life, it's their culture, it's the very essence of who they are. It's the land of Israel and they go back and everything is destroyed. And to make matters worse, what was destroyed was the temple where they believed that God resided. It's a place where they met with God. It's, it's the place where they had this divine connection with God, and it was destroyed. And, and not only was the land of Israel destroyed after they came back from Babylon, but there was conflict amongst each other, amongst the community. It was, it was complete chaos. There was lack of leadership. There was actually fears from the surrounding neighbors that could come in and they were so vulnerable that I can just take over at any point. There were droughts. The climate was not in their favor. Everything was going wrong. And, and I would say as they went to Babylon, yes, that was a low. And when they came back, they would say that this was the lowest of lows. The very fact that they were at home in their own soil, yet everything was going wrong. See, when they were in Babylon, there's a reason why things went wrong. It's because there were foreigners in other people's lands being enslaved. But now in their own home, they were living a life that they didn't think they would ever live. They came back to madness, to chaos. And I don't know where you were around 2005, but I remember watching on TV Hurricane Katrina. And I remember waking up to the news where a massive hurricane just hit. Uh, and, and it says that throughout the week, 650,000 people were displaced. 
You can see on the news, it's so weird because it felt like it was a different country, but it was a different state. And there was flooding, and, and people were evacuating, and people were losing lives, and people were getting sick. Uh, and, all, and the infrastructure was being demolished, and, and everything was just a mess. And could you imagine if you were one of those that got pushed out, and then suddenly you were allowed to come back in? And there was an interview on a news article where this woman came back to her own home and didn't recognize her, her neighborhood at all and said that coming back home after the hurricane felt like I was entering into a war zone. I mean, everything was demolished. And so I think of that as a little glimpse of when these exiles, when they came back from Babylon, they come back to their hometown and they look around and they say, man, everything is gone. The temple is destroyed. Nothing is going right. And the irony of this whole thing is, the irony is that when they came back, these are the second generation Israelites after the exile. They came in and they were kind of pompous. They thought that when they came in, these young, what I should comment is these young brats, they came in thinking they're going to make the world a better place. They're going to make Israel way better than, than their grandparents and their great-great-grandparents, that the economy is going to be thriving, that they knew better. And as a matter of fact, it was worse. They didn't want to learn. They didn't want to grow. They had this attitude that this time, through us, things will get better. And there's a little side note on that that I kind of read into that could apply to us that we need to learn from one another. Not only do we need to learn one another, we need to learn from previous generations, from our parents, from our grandparents. And oftentimes, we, or not even we, some, even younger than myself, have this attitude that we can, we can do it. We don't need to learn. We don't need to listen. And I know that there's so much bashing these days on social media, especially about millennials. And I'm in this weird age in my 30s where I'm like, I can be a millennial if I want to, or I don't have to be if I don't want to, because I'm like right in the middle, and so it just depends on what the conversation's about. Uh, and, and it seems like, and, for, and, I, and I say that because I can agree with you. I, I, as if I'm put on my millennial hat, I can agree that oftentimes millennials the younger folks, and I'm going to include myself on that because I can't for a few more years, say that we're missing something. We're missing the voices of those that have been through more, those that are more intelligent, the ones with more experience, the one that brings more wisdom. And I would say, and I would urge us, even as a church, to not be that way and to humble ourselves and to know that we have things to learn. We must learn. And so my hope and desire for Bethany West Seattle is, yes, I talk about this all the time, is to be multi, pretty much multi-everything, multicultural, multi-racial, multi-generational, because that reflects the body of Christ, and that reflects what God has for us in the way we grow, in the way we do community, in the way we learn from one another. And so just on a practical note, when we have small groups, when we have events, my desire is for us not just to gravitate to the people that look like us and think like us and, and, and do like us. I want us to gravitate towards who can I learn from? Who can I, and on the other side, who can I pour into? Those are the relationships that are going to give us transformation and growth and draw us closer to one another and to God. 
And so there's nothing wrong with developing friendships. Yes, please develop friendships. There's life stages, that there's commonality, that you must uh, do life together. But at the same time, don't be fooled. We need one another. We need people from other experiences. And especially in this case as Malachi, let's not be like these second generational Israelites who came in thinking we're going to do the best because we know best. That's absolutely not true. And that goes for us too. And that's a message to myself. We need to continually learn and to grow and to ask and be curious about one another, especially the differences in our generations. And I hope that we can live into that and I hope that we can do that. So that was a subtext. And throughout the whole book of Malachi, I would say from the first chapter to the last chapter, it's about Malachi on behalf of Israel arguing with God. And scholars call this the six disputes. And, and all six of them are in your bulletin. We're not going to go through all six disputes because uh, I believe that we can sum up all six disputes with just two disputes. You can imagine the people of God, Israelites, living in the land that they're living in. They're arguing with God. And the two main questions, even though there's six, two main questions is this. Israelites are asking the question, God, where are you? God, look around. Do you, do you love us? Have you loved us? In Malachi chapter 1, it says this. Uh, it's in verse 2, it says, God says this. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Have you ever asked that question? God, you say you love me, and I read about it, and I hear about it, and people tell me about it, but gosh darn it, I have not seen it. God, how? Come on, God. How have you actually loved me? That's what the people of Israel are screaming and yelling and crying out to God. God, how have you loved me? And God says this, is is not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. I have made his hill a country of desolation and his heritage a, a, a desert for jackals. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear it down until they are called the wicked country, the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. There's something very strange going on here. God is trying to reassure the Israelites, I love you. And the Israelites are kind of arguing, this dispute. You say you love me, but how? How have you showed that to me? Because my life has proven that you actually don't. And there's this response on the other side where God says something really strange. The way I'm proving that I loved you and I love you now is that I've been with Jacob. I chose Jacob to be my descendant. You are a part of Jacob's line. We are a part of Jacob's line. And I've hated Esau. They were brothers. Meaning I've blessed your descendants to, to be fathers of many other descendants. I've given you back this land. I'm going to make you flourish because... You are in the line of Jacob. In the line of Esau, what we see later on in other, several other uh, books is that Esau uh, in his line was the Edomites. They were destroyed. And in Romans chapter 8 and 9, the New Testament, uh, Paul is talking about this very same thing. It's like God loves you because God chose you and God is for you. 
And God loves you. And that's the same idea that, uh, that Malachi is saying to his people. How do you know that God loves you? Because God chose you. God is for you. And God is walking alongside you. You may not feel it. You may not see it right now. But, but God loves you. And you can see that because of the descendant of Jacob. The one that will receive land. The one that will receive blessing. And in chapter 4 we'll talk about the one that receives healing. And so remember that. Remember that I chose you over these people essentially is what, God's, what God is saying through Malachi to God's people. And so I don't know if you're like me, but I've asked that question before. God, where are you? God, you say you love me, but are you sure about that? And the response is very simple and yet very difficult to do. And the answer is this. Yes, I'll prove it to you. Do you know how? The word remember. Remember what I have done for you. Such a simple yet such a powerful word. Have you ever, maybe it was growing up or you're in school and you always get in trouble, uh, and the teacher, uh, teacher does a good job of, of affirming you, but the only way that the teacher affirms you is affirming you by letting you know how you've messed up, right? Or, or maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a mother or a father. They're very good at affirming you and myself and us uh, in the way we've messed up, but they do kind of a not-so-good job of affirming the way uh, that we've been successful or, or have done well. And in this strange way, uh, I feel like God is kind of saying the same thing to us. God is saying, yes, every time uh, something is going wrong, you're so quick to blame me. Every time that something is not going your way, something, every time you don't get what you asked for, all of a sudden God is saying, I'm the bad guy. But what about the time that I was there for you? What about the time that I did care for you? What about the time I did take care of you? What about the time I did provide for you? For us in our minds, especially in this Western culture, we're so easily quick to remember all the bad things and all the things that God has not come through. And this isn't just for God. This is just for, for people, right? I mean, I know this is, this is kind of pessimistic, but when we view the important people and the people that love us and people that we love, it's so easy for us to point out the times that they have failed us especially the people closest to us, we are so quick to remember and to hold on to the times that they have let us down or hurt our feelings or have said something mean. And oftentimes, we even hold that against them for a very long time. And what God is saying, yes, okay, things are not going your way, but what about the time I did come through? Like the time, he says, that I chose you to live, to be blessed, to be fruitful, to, be, to multiply, to have many nations. Hey, what about that? Did you, did you forget about that? And, and oftentimes I have to remember that even myself. And God is saying, Prentice, what, what about the time that I provided you a place to live? What about a vehicle? What about friends in your life? What about people? And so every time I am so, you know, any, any time that something goes wrong or something doesn't go my way or I... I say, God, where are you? God, do you love me? And what it says in Malachi is that, yes, God does love you. Remember? Maybe some of us this morning, 
we're asking that question. And, and maybe for many of us, it's time to do an inventory. It's an inventory of saying, God, I realize you have given to me. I realize you have blessed me and provided me with such. And, and even if it's a journal, if even if it's write, writing it down, even if it's having a conversation with somebody, it's so important for us to remember time after time, not even in just in Malachi, but all throughout the Old Testament, even the New Testament, the word remember comes up over and over and over again because so quickly the Israelites forget that God is for them and God has loved them and blessed them. Remember. Have we remembered? Do we remember the things that God has given and blessed and loved us with? And the dispute number two is, well, how have we despised you? How have we not loved you? So if the first question or the first argument or the first, you know, discussion, conflict is, God, how have you loved me? The second one is saying, well, God, how have we not loved you? And that's in chapter 6 or chapter, chapter 1, verse 6 through 11. Let me just read that real quick. It says, uh, it says, you say, how have we despised your name? And then God says, by offering polluted food on my altar. And you say, how have we polluted it? By thinking that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not wrong? Or when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not wrong? Try presenting that to your governor. Will he be pleased with you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And so basically, the people are saying, God is saying, all right, you, you have defiled me. You have walked away from me. Like, you want to be in a relationship, and you ask, God, have you loved me? And God's answer is, yes, I've proven it to you. And God is saying, well, how about you? Have you invested in our relationship? What have you done to cultivate the intimacy between you and me? And God's people, the Israelites, are saying, are you, are you kidding me? How have we not done that? We've done nothing but love you. And God's saying, are you, are, are you sure? What about the things that you sacrifice? Polluted animals? What, the lame and the sick? Is that what you call giving it your 100%? Is that what you call giving complete loyalty and love and intimacy to me? Kind of turns it around back on them. And, and I look at this, and the application is this. We can resonate with that so much. See, oftentimes when we scream out, God, where the heck are you? I really feel like God's responding back is, I'm right here. Where the heck are you? And that's exactly what's happening. And, and we're saying, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm here. I'm ready. And God's like, are you sure? Have you been investing in our relationships? And I don't know what that means for you. Have you been reading scripture? Have you been connecting with people? Have you been serving others? Have you been praying? Have you been in intimacy with me? And oftentimes the answer is no. And last week, or two weeks ago, we talked about, uh, we always say, God, I'll give to you. I will serve you when I have enough time, when I have enough money, when I have enough resources. And God is saying, right now, what you have, where you're at, is a perfect time for you to serve and to love and to give back. And yet we say, oh, I, I can't. As soon as, as soon as, remember we talked about, as soon as, fill in the blank, then, then I will. 
And, and in this chapter, I feel like God is saying, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. You say you don't have enough money, but you sure do buy Starbucks every day, coffee. I'm guilty of that. You say you don't have enough resources, but there's so much technology and we're so connected uh, than any generations have ever been before, and yet you say you don't have enough resources. You say you don't have enough time to serve, yet you can binge watch on, on, on Netflix or movies. And so the point is this. The point is God is saying, you give it your all to the, even the governor. Like, he, he says... I dare you, God says, I dare you, Israelites, to present to you, to present the governor what you present to me. You would never do that. Of course you wouldn't. You'd be in big trouble if you did. Yet, why do you do that with me? So the question is, why do we give so much time, money, energy, effort, emotions to everything else, you name it, even if it's family, friends, uh, our jobs, upper mobility, status, we give so much to that, and we kind of give God our leftovers. Or, or we have the audacity to say, God, actually, I don't have enough time or resources. Are you kidding me? I'm too busy doing this. Remember two weeks ago, it, it said, and Haggai says, yeah, I'll give to you as soon as I'm done building my own house. I'll start rebuilding the temple once I'm finished with my own yard, with my own infrastructure, with my own backyard. See, God is saying, I love you. I'm with you. I walk alongside you. I chose you. I protect you. I've given you. I've provided for you. And yet, where are you at? Where are you? Are you investing the same way? And if you're anything like me, the answer is, if we're being honest, no. Not because we don't have enough, because we do. Not because we don't have enough time, because we do. Not because we don't have enough energy, because we do. How do I know we do? Because we give that to all the other things. And yet the question is, what would it look like for us to give God our best? That doesn't mean give up everything that you do. That doesn't mean, you know, live in a monastery or be a monk or eliminate all the cool things in your life. No, absolutely enjoy it. God blesses you with it. But what does it look like for us to give back to God? What does it look like to be connected with God? I mean, our relationship with God, I'm not saying it's a tick for tack, like God does this and I do that. No, but it's a relationship, and a relationship requires participation on both sides. That's how much God loves us, that God doesn't just control us. I really do believe that if God wanted to, God can just say, you know what, you're going to love me. That's, I'm just going to wire you. I'm going to just force you to love me and to give to me. Great. Is that a relationship? No, that's control. And, and, and as we know, in all human relationships, love and control cannot coexist. They cannot coexist. And so God, out of God's own power, uh, relinquishes that control and says, I love you so much, I relinquish control, and I love you no matter what, but I'm going to let you love me. I'm going to give you the choice, the freedom to love me. And so the challenge is whenever there's disruption in our relationship with God, it's so quick for us to say, well, God is your fault. But what if it's not? What if there's something in our lives that we can stop doing or, or continue doing 
or to start doing. And I don't know what that is for us. That's something that we must navigate and wrestle through. Because I do believe this, that God's promises are faithful. See, not only has God proven in our lives, and I say this so many times, even if God stops doing anything for me starting today, if God somehow says, premise starting today, I will not bless you for the rest of your life. I don't think God will do that. But if God were to say that today, I would respond. Hopefully, I, I could respond by saying, you've done so much for me already. I'll thank you. I'll still thank you to the day I die. Even if God does nothing for me from this day forward, I still, God has still done enough for me to be thankful to, for the rest of my life. And I would say that goes for all of because God has done so much for us. And yet, it doesn't end there. God is saying, not only remember what God has done for you, but also be based on that trust. Remember what God has promised us for the future. He says this. He says in chapter 4, it says, See, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evil evildoers will, uh, will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And then in verse 2, But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Let me read that verse 2 again. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. See, Malachi is a prophet. And Malachi is reminding the Israelites, yes, it may feel like God is not there, but trust me, just, just trust God is there with you. God is walking alongside of you, and God is going to be for you, not only in the past, not only today, but even in the future. God promises that, and Malachi, is, it's a prophecy saying there will be a Messiah that comes in and saves you. Now, I know that we have this idea of saving this, this you know, hellfire and brimstone. That, that's not exactly what the, the Bible is referencing when it talks about saves, uh, but Malachi is saying, whatever you're going through, the pain, the hurt, the loss, God is going to be your savior in that, through a Messiah. And we can fast forward many thousands of years later, that message is true for us today. That as we wrestle with God, just like the Israelites, God, where are you? God, are you even there? And then we even acknowledge, God, yes, the way, these are the ways that I've failed you. These are the ways that I could contribute and to participate in our relationship. God says, you can do that through the healing and through the provision and the blessing of a coming Savior who will save you. And we know that person to be Jesus. There will be healing in its wings. This wings, the word wings in Hebrew is a word kanaf. Kanaf. And then in Matthew chapter 9, there's this woman, it says uh, she was bleeding for, for 12 years. For 12 years, she couldn't get any help. For, for 12 years, she was hopeless. Nobody could help. She probably spent most of her resources trying to get help. She was probably outcasted by her community because as she goes into to the temple and around the temple, she has to yell, unclean, unclean, I'm unclean to notify people that she was unclean because nobody can make contact with her. And then Matthew chapter 9, verse 20, 
It says, just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, Jesus. Touched the edge of the cloak of Jesus. And she said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. See, the ancient, the first century Jews in the New Testament were very familiar with the Old Testament words. In the, in the New Testament Greek that translates that edge of its cloak, the same word as the Hebrew, the word kanaf, wings. So it says, I touched the edge, I touched the kanaf of his cloak. It's a reference to not only numbers, because it talks about numbers, but also here in Malachi. It's the same word, the edge and kanaf, the wing. Malachi is saying there's this Messiah we know as Jesus that brings healing and we saw that the woman, after 12 years, after hopelessness, just touched the edge of his cloak. And she found healing in his wings. And so I'm going to invite the worship team back up as we respond. We don't just want to listen here, but we want to respond. And for some of us, I know, because I've had conversations with many, are asking God you, you love me? How have you loved me? Because we doubt that with whatever we've done, with whatever has been done to us. We doubt that and we ask, God, where, where are you? And, and I would say that that's a good thing. See, because transformation doesn't just come out of discomfort I would say transformation comes from being kicked out of comfort. We have no choice because we end up in a place where, like, God, where are you? We're so desperate. And, and, and we can get upset and we can be like, oh my gosh, we're not like the Israelites, questioning and doubting God, but we are. And I would say that's okay. In fact, if we're not there when we need to be there, there's something disingenuous. There's something wrong there. And so my hope and desire for us is to freely and to loudly say, God, where are you? Because I do believe and I'm confident that God will respond and say, God, God will respond with, remember the ways that I've been there for you? Yeah, remember how I've healed you? And remember how uh, you were going through that financial problem and I came through for you? Or remember when you were having that relational issue and, and I intervened? I think when we ask God, God will respond by reminding us, oh yeah. But the next challenge is God saying, well, have you loved me? Because when it comes to relationship, yes, we want God to love us. We want all the benefits of that without participating. So God, I want to love you. How do I love you? Reveal to the places that I've not loved you well. Maybe that's our prayer today, this morning. And so I invite you as the worship team continues to sing, that you would enter into a place of reflection, stillness, quietness, prayer. God, are you there? I don't feel you. I'm confident that God will do something. God, have I not loved you well? 
reveal that to me, and I promise you God will. And as you continue to pray and reflect, the, the team here will lead us into music, and you can participate as you feel called. And after a moment, we're going to have communion servers come up. And actually, I'll have them do that now. Let's do that now. This is the ultimate expression of God saying, I've loved you. It's the ultimate expression of saying, you want to know that I loved you? Remember the cross? Remember that God saying, remember that I sent my son Jesus to die on the cross for us on our behalf. Because God loves you and is for you. And on that night, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, take this bread and remember me, for this is my body that was broken for you. Remember, remember that. And then he says, take this cup, drink of it. This is my blood that was shed for you. Remember that, because I am for you. So again, I invite you to pray, reflect, and when you're ready, partake in communion. Take of it. This is, for, this is for the church. This is for you. And then join us in worship. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for the ways that you've come through for us. And forgive us for the ways that we forget. God, we know that this is a relationship and that you love us no matter what. But God, we want to make this relationship beautiful too. So convict us in ways that we need to be convicted to participate in that heal us in the ways that we are prohibited or we're fearful knowing that you've come through in the past you've come through for us today and you'll come through for us tomorrow and how do we know that by the eucharist by by communion where we remember your blood and body that was shed for us we thank you for that in your name we pray amen